Ladies and gentlemen, we are about ready to start. Uh, just a word about the handouts for tonight that some of you 
might have noticed there is a terrific handout that it's called Man or Rabbit, uh, which is very short. It is a greatly underappreciated short essay that Lewis wrote. There also is a really long handout. Please uh, do not feel at all that you need to read that unless you are committed to scuba diving. It is quite wonderful, but it is also something that is 18 pages long, and it's written by an academic, and so it's uh, pithy, shall we say. Uh, if, if you take the time, it will repay you the effort, but just be aware, no one will judge you if you don't pick that one up. So. Uh, let me begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this new year. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place tonight to be able to talk about this wonderful book and to look at how it relates to what it means to live for your kingdom in these days. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together with your Holy Spirit, that you would use Lewis's words to guide us to your word and to the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I'm just going to start this music again. Some of you might have heard this. My life flows on it is maybe a little more familiar song. than some of the other things. Above Does anyone know what this is? I hear the sweet, though far no. of him. Good guess, though. That hails a new creation. Nope. I hear that music ringing, it finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? Right, that was just a big giveaway right there because that was the name of the song. How can I keep from singing? And we're going to come back to this uh, in a little while. But how can I keep from singing is a little break from uh, the wonderful Anglican choral music that we usually listen to. Uh, but it is sung by plenty of Anglican choirs, lest you think that I've gone completely off the rails. Uh, but it was written by a Baptist preacher named Robert Lowry, and it is profoundly applicable to what we're talking about, and this whole idea of what it means to live with hope and wisdom, what it means to walk wisely in a culture that is like the one that we're in. Because most people, if you ask them on the street, uh, the question would not be, how can I keep from singing? The question would be, how can I keep from despair? Um, singing is not what is on the top of the list. We're not so filled with joy that we feel that we should be singing. But perhaps that's something we might consider. So we're going to get to that right at the end. So let's begin by saying our verse together as we start off. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, um, for those of you who are new or who are joining us on the video or the podcast for the first time, welcome. So glad you're here. There are several ways you can approach this class. You can be what I call on the beach, which means you show up when it's convenient to you. You don't read anything. You may not even pay attention. Uh, and you certainly would not buy the book. And if that's all you want to do, great. I'm happy to have you. Whatever you get through osmosis is all great. Or you can snorkel, which means you can go deep and pay attention on the parts that are interesting to you. But just leave off on the parts that are not and look at your phone or whatever you want to do instead. Or you can scuba dive, which means that you go down the rabbit hole, you read the 18-page handouts and the other things that I send. You listen to the music, all of that. Um, but wherever you are with that, I'm delighted to have you. Uh, if you are not on my email list, um, and particularly if you're not in Charleston, please Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, South Carolina. Somebody pointed out to me that uh, there's also Charleston, West Virginia. That's hard for us in Charleston, South Carolina to admit. Uh, but yes, Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, South Carolina, and just look for me on the website and email me and ask me to add you to the list because all the curriculum resources will come with that um, email. So that hideous strength, I just want to say I am aware, several people pointed out to me, um, that we have spent three weeks on chapter one, yes, and that there are many, many, many chapters in this book. And some people are thinking Jesus might come back before we finish. However, um, I just want you to know that my New Year's resolution is to speed up. Uh, there is so much in this book that we could just spend forever, um, which I might enjoy, but you probably would not. So um, we are going to speed up. So those of you that made the New Year's resolution to switch from on the beach to a different status and are gonna start reading, um, you may have felt like you were way ahead because you were on chapter two, all I can say is watch out. So what you want to do with this is read one chapter at a time. Don't sit down and try to read the whole book. Um, make a chart of the characters and assign them to what their places are. The Bracton College people, the nice people, that's an oxymoron, and this community of St. Anne's, and then there are a couple of other just extraneous people. As you get further in the book, this will become more important. Also, look for places where those themes that we talked about last semester and the abolition of man show up, because they are all over the place. Um, we're going to be looking at a framework for appreciating what Lewis is up to, and we're going to be talking about um, why this is so relevant today. Um, it's pretty obvious, I think, most of it. Um, but we're also going to look at how we can respond to these things with practices of hope and wisdom that are rooted in the scriptures. So just a quick review um, from our time in the abolition of man, Men Without Chest, the first part of that important essay of Lewis's about the importance of objective value and the poison of subjectivism. The whole idea that when we think we're the ultimate arbiters of everything, 
um, there's no such thing as an absolute, that that begins to spell the end of trying to live uh, with beauty, truth, and goodness. Secondly, the way, or what Lewis calls the Tao, this whole idea of the law of human nature, which is the source of all real value judgments. And then lastly, the abolition of man, the summation of this essay, where Lewis says this whole idea that if we can achieve enough control over nature and we can follow um, technology and science farther enough, we are going to be able to create a utopia that is going to be so wonderful for everyone. And Lewis says, in fact, man's control of nature is in reality a means for some men to control other men using nature as their instrument. And that this whole movement of deconstruction, which we spent a lot of time talking about, Derrida and Foucault and all of those people, to see through everything, to pull all meaning and value out of everything so there's nothing left, means that you're not seeing anything at all. So the Ransom Trilogy, which that hideous strength is the um, culminating volume, starts with Out of the Silent Planet, where a Cambridge Don, a Cambridge professor, is kidnapped and taken to Mars uh, to be a human sacrifice. Not something most of us would particularly care to have happen to us. Uh, he manages to escape. He befriends the native Martians. Y'all are way too young, but I still remember when I was little, I could watch my favorite Martian when I came home from elementary school, and I thought it was so cool. Um, but people were sort of obsessed with Martians. That was the main sort of area of space back then. So this guy actually got to meet the Martians while he was there and learn about this whole cosmic war between good and evil, between the forces of God and the forces of the bent one, the evil one, um, playing out in the planets. And then Paralandra is the story uh, of Venus. That's Lewis's name for the planet Venus. And he imagines the Garden of Eden and the Adam and Eve story taking place without the fall imagining what a world would look like without sin, without evil. And it is fascinating in some of Lewis's most beautiful writing. And then that hideous strength is uh, an interesting mix where you've got academia, university politics, um, you've got government, you've got Arthurian legend and spiritual warfare all sort of rolled up into one. And uh, that is what we are exploring right now. And in the front matter, and we've talked about with Lewis, nothing is an accident. So the front matter, the part you usually skip over trying to get to where the story starts, it's very important to pay attention. And Lewis tips his hand here uh, by putting this quotation from this uh, medieval poem by Sir David Lindsay uh, about the Tower of Babel. The shadow of that hideous strength six mile and more it is of length. And the Tower of Babel, of course, being the time that the human race decides we don't really need God, we're so smart, we can do everything ourselves, and we can create this wonderful thing, and we don't need God anymore. And that is really the subtext that runs through this whole book. And then there's this little quotation um, from George Orwell's uh, review of this book back in 1944. 1945, plenty of people in our age do entertain the monstrous dreams of power that Mr. Lewis attributes to his characters, and we are within sight of the time 
when such dreams will be realizable. Again, prophetic. So this is, Lewis says in the preface, this is a tall story about devilry, though it has behind it a serious point, which I tried to make in my abolition of man. And it's easy to skip over that, but the fact that Lewis uses the word devilry is really important. He is saying he believes in the devil, he believes in this cosmic war that is going on, angels versus demons, um, all of that kind of stuff. So some of the characters, Jane Studdock. Jane Studdock is the main female character. She is a modern woman in the best and worst senses of that word, a career woman. Uh, she is brilliant. Uh, she is married to Mark Studdock. Um, she is not very happy in her marriage. She thought that she could be fulfilled being married, but she really wanted her career to be her fulfillment, and it has not gone as she expected. She's deliberately chosen not to have children because they would be in the way, and she is plagued by these dreams that come to her that are sort of nightmares, one of which involves watching some people come in to this man who is a prisoner and behead him by twisting his head off in front of her. Pretty gruesome. Um, so she's very upset by that and doesn't understand what's going on. Francois Alcasson is the criminal that she sees being beheaded. Merlin, you might remember from your childhood reading, if you read any T.H. White, The Once and Future King, any of the Arthur legends, Merlin hasn't shown up yet, but he's been mentioned. He's the ancient druid um, bearded man from the King Arthur days, um, but uh, an interesting mixture of some pagan past, but also with uh, early British Christianity. Mark Studdock, Jane's husband, uh, is an academic of the kind that Lewis really did not like very much. Lewis thought that there were certain academic fields that were real and others that were not. Sociology, I'm sorry if anyone majored in sociology. Um, sociology was the one that he liked to heap particular scorn on, um, that it was not really an academic discipline. So of course, Mark is a sociologist. Um, he is at Bracton College, which was established uh, in uh, Sir Henry de Bracton's will uh, to provide for scholars who are studying the law and the word of God and to pray for his soul and to offer worship, all of which the school has stopped doing while continuing to spend the money um, that Henry Bracton left them. Uh, Subwarden Curry is the dean of Bracton College. Uh, he is kind of a figurehead, a blowhard, who talks a lot but uh, does not have a lot of intellectual depth. James Busby is the bursar. Canon Jewell is the old retired priest um, that sort of putters around, um, probably even according to his enemies, the smartest person there, but he has absolutely no credibility because the progressive element says everything that he believes, thinks, or ever wrote is hopelessly outdated. Um, Lord Feverstone is a person who appeared earlier in the trilogy as Dick Devine, who was the um, evil, sleazy businessman who partnered with the folks that kidnapped the guy and took him to Mars. Um, and Lewis is making a little commentary here about how in England being a lord isn't what it used to be. Um, that people who uh, make lots of money and give it to the right people sometimes get titles. 
Um, Arthur Denniston is an old friend of Mark's uh, who was passed over so Mark could get the job at Bracton College. The Dembles are this couple um, associated with academia. Um, Jane Studdock studied under Dr. Demble and always admired his wife, who they call Mother Demble. Um, they're going to play a larger role later on. Grace Ironwood, uh, this is another example. Lewis always is playing with names. So Grace Ironwood, you haven't read a lot about yet if you're just in chapter one and two, um, but she is the person that they've directed Jane to go see about her dreams. Now Ironwood, and some of you who've taken other classes know, Lewis and Tolkien were obsessed with Norse literature. They actually met each other in college at a meeting of what was called the Coal Biters Club, a group of people that sat around in the cold at night and read Icelandic literature to each other out loud in the original language. Doesn't that sound like fun? Uh, so in the Norse mythology, Ironwood is the translation of Jarnvjör. Now the Jarnvjör are a race of women who are something between trolls and giantesses that everyone is mortally afraid of because they are so powerful. And so here we have that image, but her first name is Grace. So Lewis is playing with us about that. We'll talk more about that later. And then we have Ivy Mags. Um, Ivy Mags is the, the char, uh, what they used to call the, the housekeeper, um, who comes in to help. More about her later as well. So the first chapter, for those of you um, who haven't read it, um, what happens is Jane and Mark are married, and it starts off with Jane talking about how miserable she is, and then having this horrible experience of this nightmare of this man being beheaded, and then she's even more upset when she opens the newspaper, and there's a picture of what she had dreamed. So she's very disturbed that it's something real. Meanwhile, Mark is being uh, seduced by some of the powers that be at Bracton College, who are up to no good, wanting to sell off the most important and historic part of the college. And he is all excited about being invited into this inner ring. And we talked about Lewis's essay, The Inner Ring, which was one of the handouts. Uh, we talked about this disembodied head um, in Jane's dream and how that goes with Lewis's Men Without Chest and the Abolition of Man. We talked about real science. We talked a little bit about gender roles and the inner ring. So the last part of that chapter, uh, we talked about the college meeting where they're talking about selling the most important part of their heritage. Uh, it is just unbelievable um, that they would even be doing this, but the Bracton Wood, which is where Merlin's Well is, is this ancient, beautiful site that people come from all over England to see, and it's the thing that the college is famous for. But they want to sell it to the nice. The nice, uh, well, yes, the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments, uh, who are up to no good. And so there's this whole uh, faculty meeting that goes on where there's all of this doublespeak, which we talked about last time, where you can't really even tell what they're talking about. There's all this obfuscation and lots of hot air and maneuvering for power and all of that. No one speaking the truth. And 
making it clear that if you are one of those young fellows that they tried to get to the meeting to get their votes, that there's no money for you to get a stipend unless this wood is sold. So that switches the scene after that back to the Stuttock's home. Um, she goes over and meets with Mrs. Dimble after she goes shopping, and they start talking about Merlin's well. And the other part of Jane Stuttock's dream was there was this weird guy who looked like he was dead in sort of a druid robe that started coming back to life and speaking what she thought was Spanish. And so Dr. Dumble, who's an expert in this era of history, starts saying if Merlin came back, he would probably speak something that sounded like Spanish. Well, at this point, Jane about faints because it's happening again that her dream seems to be true. So she doesn't quite know what to do. So we talked about um, the beauty, truth, and goodness that is used in Lewis's incredible description of what Bracton Wood is like. This walking through the college, the different courtyards, it's just beautiful. He keeps talking about the Inigo Jones Gate, all of these things. Then we talked about the devilry of bureaucracy and doublespeak. Um, and it's this whole idea that doublespeak is the complete opposite of the plain and simple truth. And the example in the Oxford English Dictionary is if a pharmaceutical company said something like, there are some minor side effects when they should clearly be saying, this drug may cause a heart attack, they're using doublespeak and communicating in a deceptive manner. And so the other thing that Lewis is making very clear in this chapter is the nice is all about the hopes of a better world based on government and science as savior, an utterly secular worldview that says there is no God and religion is not just neutral but harmful to society and culture. So chapter two, dinner with the sub-warden. So let me just run through this little summary here. So after this meeting where they have voted to sell the wood, Mark is feeling very full of himself as like the lowest guy on the totem pole and the dean, the dean invites him to dinner. What an honor. So he goes with him and with Lord Feverstone, the aristocrat from London, he is getting to be part of that group and he is thrilled with himself. And so they are sitting around having drinks in this lovely room and talking about the nice, uh, which is such an oxymoron. And Busby and Curry, the bursar and the dean, are talking about how it's going to be so good for the college and all of the wonderful things about the nice and how great that they're selling this wood. And then finally, Curry and Busby have to leave the party. And as soon as they leave the party, Mark is alone with Lord Feverstone. And the instant the door closes, Lord Feverstone starts chuckling. And he chuckles and chuckles until he is shrieking with kind of maniacal laughter. And Mark starts joining in, although he has no idea what they're laughing about, because he wants to be in good with these people. And so finally, when Feverstone calms down, he starts talking about how rich it is that Busby and Curry think that they know what's going on, whereas in fact, they don't know anything about the nice at all, and Feverstone has been able to completely manipulate them. And he talks about how they're stupid 
and that, but that they're useful because they will carry out whatever is suggested to them by Lord Feverstone. And so they led this charge to bring the nice into the college, even though they didn't know what the nice was. Now, Mark is so entranced with Lord Feverstone that even though he has just trashed these people that Mark has worked with and used to look up to, Mark completely shifts his opinion and just goes right along with it and says, oh, yes, well, obviously, you know, they're not as smart. And then, of course, Feverstone says, oh, but you, Mark, you are smart. You are the kind of person we need. Um, I congratulate you for understanding the point of the nice. Now, meanwhile, Mark has no idea what the nice is. He knows nothing about it, not one thing. He probably doesn't even know what the letters stand for. But he is so seduced by this idea of being in favor with Lord Feverstone that he just nods his head and accepts the congratulations. And then Feverstone says, I would like to take you out there so that you could be interviewed as a possible member. Now, this is like if there were some club that you had always wanted to get into but didn't think it would ever be possible, it's like being invited into that. Or if you were and also ran on the sports team and were always put on the bench, and all of a sudden the coach came to you and said, oh, I want you to start in all of our games now. That's the kind of seduction that's going on here. And so Mark is beside himself about, this is amazing. I'm such a great guy. I am so smart. They have finally recognized how amazing I am. And so he is just thrilled about that, that he has moved from inner circle to inner circle to inner circle. And now this aristocrat wants to bring him into this new organization that is so powerful and rich and is going to save the world. So he is thrilled. And Feverstone talks to him a little bit about the nice and says it's on the side of order. The whole ability for man to take control of his destiny, to eliminate all those things that cause problems and uncertainty in the world, to make man a really efficient animal, and that science needs to be given a completely free hand. And he says there are three problems the nice is going to solve. The first is the interplanetary problem, this battle of good and evil that's going on among the planets, and the nice is going to put an end to that. Secondly, he starts talking about the fact that life is a problem. The way life on the earth is, is untidy. There are all sorts of animals, and there are all sorts of plants, and they're untidy, and they have to be maintained. And you'll see later on, he suggests we just replace all plants with plastic and metal, because that way you don't have to maintain them anymore. And so this, this sort of living stuff is just a problem and needs to be gotten rid of. And then he talks about the last and most important problem is man himself. The problem is that there are so many people who are undesirable. It reminds me of that old Quaker proverb, all art queer but me and thee, and sometimes thou art a little peculiar. So everybody is suspect. Everybody has 
issues except for this inner ring, the people who know what's best for everyone else. So he says, of course, the first thing we have to do is sterilize all the unfit so they cannot reproduce. Then the backward races needed to be rounded up and exterminated, and then we need to do selective breeding. And you know, the interesting thing about this, when we see this, we immediately think, oh, Nazi Germany. And that's right, but what you don't know, unless you've studied it, sometime when you're just bored, go Google the history of eugenics and look at eugenics at the beginning of the 20th century and look how every major university in America and in Europe sponsored academic conferences on eugenics and it was viewed as the future. This is the way the human race moves on and gets better. And it was a very respectable academic discipline until World War II happened and the Nazis actually started practicing some of these academic theories. But Lord Feverstone is unapologetic. He thinks this is the brave new world. And he says they want Mark to come in because he's such a gifted writer. And you can see Mark just, oh, thank you. And then he realizes that instead of wanting him to write brilliant academic papers, they want him to do what he thinks of as hack journalism. And he, he actually says something to Feverstone, which given that he's in this thrall of uh, wonder uh, and awe of Feverstone, it's amazing he says anything at all, but he says, well, do you want me to be just a journalist? And he says, oh, no, 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 no. You are so gifted because you can write in such a manner that you can camouflage our purpose. You can camouflage what we're really up to. Um, in other words, produce propaganda until we can say it openly. And Mark is so eager that he sacrifices even this pretended academic superiority that he's been congratulating himself on and is willing basically to sell his soul to write propaganda for this group that he doesn't even know what they really do yet. Although he's just heard a pretty horrible list, but he's still all in. He's so excited. He's getting ahead. He's making a name for himself. He's gonna have such a career and Jane is gonna be so proud of him. So he finally gets home late, not having told Jane he was gonna do any of these things. So she's been sitting there all night by herself, having nightmares and becoming terrified that someone is out to get her. And so he walks in, and this independent career woman, who has kind of an icy personality, throws her arms around him, sobbing, and says, oh, I'm so glad you're home. Well, that is something that has never happened in their relationship before. So he is quite shocked. And then the next day, she is horrified. She is embarrassed. She is mortified that she displayed emotion, that she showed a weakness. Because she's in a competition with him about which one of them is the more brilliant and sophisticated and career successful. So she is very unhappy and talks to herself about having acted like the little woman. And so this anger um, spills over at Mark, particularly when Mark announces 
that he is going to go away for the weekend with Lord Feverstone. Well, she's never even met Lord Feverstone before, and the whole idea that he would just take off and leave her at home alone in this time where she's scared and frightened, and he wants to have his sister come to take care of her. Well, she's just insulted by that, um, that he would even suggest such a thing. And then Feverstone shows up at their house, and there's a hilarious scene in there where Feverstone drives up, and he's got this fancy red sports car, of course, and he drives up, and he hasn't met Jane before, and Mrs. Maggs, who Jane really looks down on, the charwoman, Mrs. Maggs, um, dowdy, frumpy, cockney, wrong social class, no education. Lord Feverstone comes into the kitchen where Jane and Mrs. Maggs are standing and thinks that Mrs. Maggs is Jane. And so he introduces himself to the housekeeper and shakes her hand warmly and goes on and on about how lucky she is to be married to such a wonderful, bright, and promising young man. As Jane stands there, turning red in the face with steam coming out of her ears. So she is furious. And so he leaves, and then she just thinks about what a terrible person Lord Feverstone is, and goes off on a whole jag about that, and then worries that he's going to make a fool of Mark. She's absolutely right about that, because she said Mark can be so easily taken in. So she also is worried about this time alone, and so the Dumbles had recommended that she go see this Miss Ironwood person, and she decides to do it. So Miss Ironwood lives at a place called St. Anne's, and as the chapter ends, you see Mark getting in the sports car, going off with Lord Feverstone at this reckless speed, breaking all the laws, driving to where the nice is temporarily headquartered at a blood transfusion laboratory. Hmm. I'm sure that's just an accident he picked that. Uh, and Jane is on a slow train going through the beauty of the English countryside towards St. Anne's. There's a whole thing we're going to talk about next week about these journeys. So that's where the chapter ends. So there are a number of themes in here that I want to just highlight. First is pride and gossip in the inner circle. So pride, according to Lewis, uh, those of you that were in mere Christianity class, is the chief sin. It is the sin from which everything else proceeds. If you were at the men's lunch day, you heard Mark Fenley talk about exactly this. It's like we'd been sharing our notes with each other, except we didn't. Um, but this whole idea of pride and gossip um, being connected to that. And you see in this book, when you look at what goes on in these conversations in the college, it is all about putting everybody else down and self-aggrandizement. It is the classic what you think of as water cooler conversation in an office environment. It's the kind of thing that is rife in a lot of people's lives where people talk about, well, my workplace is toxic uh, because everybody is putting everybody else down, trying to get ahead, trying to make themselves look better, um, talking down about other people and how bad they are. And that is absolutely what you see in this chapter. And you see Feverstone 
playing up to Busby and Curry, and then the instant that they leave the room talking about how terrible and stupid they are. Now, I'm sure none of us ever have participated in that sort of behavior. We're going to come back to that. Um, the next theme is this whole idea of using people and abusing power. This idea that people are pawns to be used on our ladder of success. And certain people may be rungs on that ladder and they have to be stepped on in order for us to get ahead. Um, it is this whole idea that we can use people and then laugh at them for how stupid they are. Um, but it is the opposite of treating people as being made in the image of God. And it is so easy in our culture to unintentionally buy into this attitude. Particularly, and I'm pointing the finger at myself right here, if you've spent an interminable amount of time on hold with Comcast, and then that person finally answers the phone after you've gone through the eighth circle of hell on the loop of push this button, and you finally get that person, do you treat that person as someone made in the image of God? that you want to just help them have a better day and be a blessing to them? Or do you want to tell them exactly what you think? Well, I probably fall in the latter category, but one of the things Lewis is trying to get at here is that we as Christians are called to live differently. We are called to see the image of God in everyone, even the people that we are frustrated with, and to treat them with respect. And then there's this theme of corruption of language. Uh, and of course, that beautiful scene of Mark being congratulated by Feverstone for his deep understanding of the nice, when in fact Mark has no idea what it is, and he's too afraid of being classed with Busby and Curry to ask any questions. And Mark is to serve as a writer of propaganda to camouflage what the nice is really doing, i.e., he is being paid to be a liar. And we see in our culture today what we call spin, um, the whole idea of telling partial truths, changing emphases, photoshopping, video clips that are designed to tell narratives that do not speak the fullness of truth. And this is something that as Christians we are called to have no truck with, but it is all too easy to get sucked into that. The next theme is this whole idea of taking control, masters of the universe, this idea that creating this new world order where man is in charge of his own destiny, that that is somehow a good thing. And of course, the ironic thing about this is you look through history and there's movement after movement after movement after movement after movement where people have tried to do this to create the perfect utopian world. And all of them have ended in failure. But somehow each generation thinks, we're the ones. We're the ones that are going to be able to take control, and we're going to be able to fix the human race. We're going to be able to fix the planet. And all those people that went before us were just stupid. Um, just read about the metaverse. If you haven't read about the metaverse, it's quite frightening. It is uh, the latest thing from Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. 
uh, where we can create an entire alternate reality where we just, you can even get, instead of goggles, now you can get ultimate virtual reality contact lenses, and you can live in that reality instead of in the real world. If that doesn't scare you, it should. Um, and then there is this whole idea about this atheistic, materialistic, utilitarian view of man. Men without chess, men that are just cogs in a machine of efficiency, a new breed of man who is an efficient animal. If you've watched the Lord of the Rings movies, which I hope you have, uh, if you haven't, you have missed out, um, there's a great scene in those movies where Sauron, the, e the evil um, dark lord, is in league with Saruman, the wizard who has been turned to evil, and they create this race called the Urukai. And all they are, are they're, just, they're bred to be warriors and to die. They're not supposed to have any kind of existence. They're just to be used by others. And that's the vision of man, the vision of women, the vision of the human race that Feverstone and the Nice have. And then this whole idea of wariness about dependence and marriage and vulnerability in general. And this whole idea where you see Jane regretting her weakness and vulnerability and wanting to regain her cold independence where her equality is the most important thing. So, some practices of hope and wisdom in case you're depressed by all of that. Um, so let's say this verse from Philippians. Um, the reason we keep saying this is because this is really important, particularly these days. So let's say this together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And part of what Paul is getting at here is that what we think about matters. What we let into our minds matters. And if we dwell in the cesspool of what is going on in our culture, we will end up in despair. But if we choose to think about things that are lovely, honorable, just, true, pure, all of that, it will change the way we approach life. And the second part of this is that we are to choose how we think, and then we are to choose how we act. We are to imitate Paul and practice what Paul practiced. And of course, Paul is practicing what Jesus practiced, that we are to emulate that kind of life. So a couple of practices that are important. The first one is to avoid gossip and putting others down. Bishop Salmon, whom some of y'all will remember, um, had a great little catchphrase where he would go around talking about how gossip is domestic terrorism. And he had absolutely no patience for it. And as you may know, when you're the bishop, everybody wants to come to you to complain about everything. And so people would come into his office and they would say, Bishop, let me tell you about Joe so-and-so. He, if you knew what he was doing in our church, and the bishop would say, uh, excuse me, just a moment. Did you say Joe so-and-so? And the person would say, yes, sir. And the bishop would say, just a moment. And then he would punch in a phone number and ask his assistant to get Joe so-and-so on the phone. And then he would say, Joe, I have 
John here, John has come to see me about something that has to do with you. And my understanding of Matthew 18 is that he should be talking to you instead of me. So please take this opportunity. That's pretty bold. But I will say that is a way to cut down on gossip. And Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you have something against your brother or if you remember that your brother has something against you, that you are to go to him alone and talk with him about it. So, then this verse, do not let any, ooh, that's strong, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, if we actually acted like that means what it says, it would transform the way that we speak about others. And then Proverbs, a perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. And then Ephesians 4, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, I understand that that is radical, and I certainly don't want to stand here and say, I have mastered that because I have not. But the truth is, the more that we live that way, the more joy and the more power we will experience in our lives in a closeness to Christ. Secondly, respect the dignity and freedom of others as made in the image of God and treat them with kindness and respect. This little passage is so important. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is that whole great theological doctrine of the Imago Dei, being made in the image of God, the only part of all of creation, everything in the world that reflects the image of God is man and woman. It is a glorious destiny where scripture, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, scripture talks about the wonder of who God has made man to be, and he's given man dominion over everything else, and yet our culture is pushing at us all the time to say that we are nothing more than animals, and we are no more worthy than any animal or any plant, even a cockroach. Uh, you know, it, it's just amazing the reductionism of what it means to be human. And Christians, of all people, need to lean fully into this. Lewis has a beautiful section at the end of The Weight of Glory about this, about there are no ordinary people. And then this uh, passage from St. Paul. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We are the only part of creation that God's spirit dwells in. And then one of the most beautiful chapters in all of scripture um, that we can spend the whole night talking about, Romans 12, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling, cling, that's a big strong word, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. This 
is one of those verses that if you ever begin to even get hold of a little bit of it, it will change your life. Because this is telling us how to love people that we profoundly disagree with. We are told in this verse that we must be sincere, i.e. not fake. We can hate what is evil, but we need to cling to what is good. And in each person there is something good. In each person there is that image of God. We need to cling to those things that are good and people that we disagree with. We need to be devoted to other people, and we need to honor others above ourselves. And then thirdly, strive to be clear and empathic communicators, using your words carefully and being clear what you mean. Resist passive-aggressive language and innuendo and half-truths. If you want to know how not to communicate, just watch the news. It's easy. Uh, that is a perfect example most of the time of communication that is not always truthful. It's not empathic. It's judgmental. Um, words are not used carefully, and it's often not clear what is meant. Uh, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more from this comes from evil. That's pretty strong. Then, in view of what he has made us then, dear brothers, let every man be quick to listen, but slow to use his tongue, and slow to lose his temper. For man's temper is never the means of achieving God's true goodness. That's the J.B. Phillips translation. Let me read that again. And just think about what would happen if we practiced this. In view of what God has made us then, Dear brothers and sisters, let every man or woman be quick to listen, but slow to use his or her tongue, and slow to lose his or her temper. For man's temper, woman's temper, is never the means of achieving God's true goodness. We live in a culture that is quick to speak and slow to listen, the exact opposite of what God calls us to. And then, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. And then the golden rule is you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And again, with the golden rule, so often we misunderstand that. We think it says, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Well, that's good. You shouldn't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But what it actually says is what you wish others would do for you, you should do to them. That means you should consider what it is that would make you have an amazing day. And then think about, well, what would make my friend have an amazing day? And then you should go and do those things for that friend. This is very proactive and other-focused. It's not passive. And then fourth, Embrace the fullness of what it means to be made in the image of God as a human being, the summit of God's creation, and resist ideas and practices that seek to treat humans as animals or cogs in a machine. And I just have to tell you, this is one of those things where being older gives you some perspective. Those of you that are younger have not seen this as much. But the amount of energy and language in our culture right now that tries to reduce people to
to the level of animals is absolutely breathtaking. If you went back 50 years, there was hardly any of that. And now, for a lot of people, that is their credo. Um, they really see that as their view of reality. But the scriptures could not be clearer about this. Listen to these words from Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of a loving and wise God. Uh, there's a beautiful point in Lewis's Man or Rabbit that I just want to quote here. Two points of view about being human. One believes that men are going to live forever, that they were created by God and so built that they can find their true and lasting happiness only by being united to God, that they've gone badly off the rails, and that obedient faith in Christ is the only way back. The other point of view believes that men are an accidental result of the blind workings of matter, that they started as mere animals and have more or less steadily improved, that they're going to live for about 70 years, that their happiness is fully attainable by good social services and political organizations, and that everything else, vivisection, birth control, the judicial system, education, is to be judged to be good or bad simply insofar as it helps or hinders that kind of happiness. Well, Lewis saw that dichotomy in the 1940s, and that dichotomy is even more stark today. Fifthly, seek the lordship of Christ in your own life and pray for his will to be done in the world, rejecting the idea that there is any wisdom or plan superior to that of the Lord. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then again from Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then lastly, so important in the body of Christ, practice vulnerability in key relationships, learning to share your burdens and to bear the ones of those you love. This is a two-way street. Being vulnerable means opening up about where you struggle, but it also means bearing the burdens of others. But of course, others can't bear your burdens if you just say, oh, I'm fine. Opening up and being vulnerable is so important. As scripture says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But 
God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This could not be more upside down from what the world says. The world says, never show you have a weakness, always be strong, never show a kink in the armor, and the more that you can step on other people and be powerful, the better and more successful you will be. Christ calls us to be exactly the opposite. The fact that the cross is the symbol of our faith is not an accident. So that brings us full circle back to How Can I Keep From Singing, written by Baptist minister Robert Lowry years and years ago. And I'm, wanna, I'm not going to sing this, don't worry. I want to just read you these words. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, which is dangerous at this hour, but close your eyes and just listen to these words. My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet, though far-off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear the music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? What though my joys and comforts die, the Lord my Savior liveth. What though the darkness gather round, songs and the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? I lift mine eyes, the cloud grows thin. I see the blue above it. And day by day this pathway smooths since first I learned to love it. The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am his. How can I keep from singing? You can open your eyes. That is a huge contrast to the way of the world. And I ask you, would you rather live in the way of the world or would you rather live in that reality? Because that reality is the one that is true with a capital T. Let's close by saying our verse together one more time. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the wisdom that is portrayed in this book. Lord, we confess to you how easily we are molded by this world, how easily 
we are conformed to this world. Lord, we pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds, that we would present ourselves as a living sacrifice to you, knowing that when we do that, we will become most fully the people that you created us to be, gloriously and wonderfully made in your image. Lord, we thank you that we should be singing because of the truth and beauty of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for all these things and pray that you would go with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for coming. Please, before you go, try to find somebody in this room that you do not know and introduce yourself to them. Thanks for being here. Chloe, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.